0: Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannon. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. In this gospel passage that we just heard from Deacon Bow. Uh, we have yet another underscoring of one of the most important principles in the Christian life, in human life, actually, in all of life. This principle goes to the very heart and center of our salvation in God. It's a principle which unfortunately doesn't fit soundly in a lot of modern Christian schemes for how to be saved, and so it often gets overlooked or marginalized though the scriptures here and in many other places are insistent on this. People go on convincing themselves that they can have a right relationship with God, or at least that they can slide under the radar and gain admittance to paradise simply by believing the right things or following a checklist of rules. But the principle that they ignore, that we all probably ignore sometimes, the principle highlighted in this passage is inescapable. It's the reality that the life we find in God is the same life shared with the whole world, the same life we share with all of creation. It's the reality that the family of God is exactly that, a family. And when we gain God as our father, we gain many brothers and sisters. There's a contemporary phrase that says it well. We're saved together, but damned alone. How does this particular passage make this point? Well, let's look at it. It begins with St. Peter asking Jesus how many times he should forgive someone who sins against him. He asks up to seven times. <laughs> I think because we already know Jesus' answer in our hearts, we we hear Peter's number and think that's kind of ludic- ludic- ludicrously low. That's a hard word to say as an adverb. We interpret Peter to be sort of lowballing. you know? Is he saying, uh, like, 7 exactly specifically that sounds strange but i doubt that st peter made up the number 7 i think he's probably drawing on a jewish custom um maybe a rabbinic interpretation of the torah you see a lot of the law given by god in the old testament dealt with how people were to worship him but a lot of it also was to show how people were to interact with each other and in a savage world and don't forget four six thousand years ago, the world was very different. Human beings were just as intelligent, but their moral intelligence was not what we are accustomed to now. There was a lot of ground between them and us now. So back then, the way that they interacted with each other, we would consider absolutely savage. It would be a terrifying world to live in for us. And so in this world, where these 12 racially and religiously affiliated tribes are wandering in the desert trying to settle amicably in a new land sandwiched between other larger nations, trying to establish order and stability, the governmental and interpersonal rules that the Torah set up for them were vitally important to their community, to their civilization. And many of them were actually simply to restrain their savagery. (laughs) For example, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye. Where had people heard that said? In the Torah. Specifically in Exodus 21. Life for life, eye for eye, hand for hand, foot for foot. In Leviticus 24. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. And Deuteronomy 19. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for a foot. So was the law being vindictive, encouraging vengeance? No. In fact, that Deuteronomy passage, the verses immediately before it say, And you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother, so that you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the others will hear of it and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. So the point of this law was to societally restrain evil not encourage it firstly it was the judges deciding these sentences not just everyone all the parties uh who were injured for themselves it was it was set up as a law for the judges to handle and secondly the eye for an eye and the hand for a hand thing it was a set balance it restrained the temptation to take a hand for the theft of a sack of grain so with those kinds of standards in place forgiving someone who sinned against you at all instead of seeking some kind of balanced retribution is actually a step forward. So what Peter is saying is forgiving them seven times seems kind of downright generous. But just like Christ took eye for an eye and said, do not resist the evil person and took the phrase, love your friends, hate your enemies and said instead, love your enemies. So he took St. Peter's suggestion seven times and he expanded it to 77 or 7 times 7 there's kind of a weird translation thing and actually St John Chrysostom says that it's 70 times 7 which is 490 but St Augustine said that phrase means 77 which interestingly he points out is the number of generations from Christ back to Adam but anyway both St Augustine and St John Chrysostom know what Jesus is saying here it's it's a hebraism it's a way of saying ongoing you do not stop forgiving the person who sins against you. Incredible. This is a breakthrough in morality, hitting the planet (laughs) with a planet not ready for it. This is St. Peter already offering a generous seven times and getting, no, ongoing. Now, the parable that Christ gives right after this to illustrate what he's saying is of a servant who owed his master a massive sum of money. Okay? And in his mercy, the king, the master, pardons the servant from all his debt. It says that the master was moved with compassion and forgave the servant because he begged for it. He wanted to be forgiven. He desired not to be thrown in prison with his family and, and everything else. And so the, the master had compassion on him and forgave a gigantic debt, which the servant was never going to be able to pay back. The servant, however, then goes out and tries to collect from a fellow servant who owed him just a minuscule portion of the debt that he was just forgiven and refuses to forgive his fellow servant. Now, this, of course, is an image of our position to God and our potential position to other people. What we owe God, not only for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life as we pray, but also for our unimaginably heavy sin of even turning our hearts away from God to an imagined self-sufficiency, Add on to that the cost of the incarnation of God becoming a man, suffering and dying on a cross to rescue us, and our debt to God is impossible to conceive. Compared to that debt, anything potentially owed to us by another human being is hardly worth even mentioning. And yet we constantly struggle to let go of the smallest, pettiest sins committed against us. Well, I'll speak for myself. But in the parable This refusal to forgive others means that our debt won't be forgiven either. Where else is this principle clearly articulated, if anywhere? Well, how about the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses, debts, as we forgive those who trespass against us, who have debts against us. Similarly, Jesus says elsewhere that whatever measure we use to judge, that measure will be used against us. And again, He instructs us to leave our offering at the altar if we remember that we have a wound that needs to be healed with our brother or sister. This correlation between our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow human being is central. It's central to the gospel. It's central to our life. It even goes all the way back to the very beginning of the world. Cain's offering to God was unacceptable because he had no love for his brother. As St. Cyprian said, For even in the sacrifices which Abel and Cain first offered, God looks not at their gifts, but at their hearts, so that it was acceptable in his gift who is acceptable in his heart. Abel, peaceable and righteous in his sacrificing and innocence to God, taught others also, when they bring their gift to the altar, thus to come with the fear of God, with a simple heart, with the law of righteousness, and with the peace of concord it turns out, against what Cain suggested, we are our brother's keepers because God keeps us. The relationship is unbreakable. To be in God's family means to be family with everyone God has made. To make this maybe a little more concrete, let's put it this way. Let's do a thought experiment. We expect to see God remake the world, right? The new heavens and the new earth, heaven and earth becoming one, the new world made, a world purged of all evil, heartache, pain, suffering, deterioration, and death. But That also means a world with no enmity, no jealousy between people, no hatred, no grudges, no suspicion, and no fear. What kind of people could possibly live in a world like that? And before you raise your hand, think if there is anyone out there in this world currently that you'd rather not bump into ever again. Now picture yourself in that remade world, that perfect world, and there encountering that person as well. Are you still confident that you belong there, that you would be comfortable there? Because make no mistake, you and anyone else living in that world will have had to have learned the lesson that you are less than perfect, that you're guilty of all kinds, of abusing the goodness of God's creation by bringing harm to others and harm to yourself, by injuring relationships between you and God and between you and others, every single person in that new creation will have had to acknowledge this and with complete humility and self-emptying say, I'm sorry, please remake me. So if you are there in that new creation and that other person You can't imagine interacting with right now is also there, you will both be remade in the perfect likeness of Christ. The old injuries, the old sins and harms will have been fully repented of, not just with God, but with each other, not just between you and God, but between you and them. If both Abel and Cain are there, Cain will have had to encounter Abel and acknowledged, I was jealous of you. I hated you. I killed you. And Abel will have said, I forgive you. I love you. How amazing. What a world that would be. What a world that will be. We believe it's coming and that will be the nature of it. Not sitting on clouds playing harps. Not just an endless amount of whatever our favorite food is or whatever other ridiculous and stupid and immature pictures that people have of heaven. I can't believe people think heaven is boring because heaven is, The new creation is going to be the most interesting the most fulfilling the most perfected thing we could possibly imagine actually it's probably going to be what we can't imagine at this point perfect relationships with all of our fellow human beings our brothers and sisters and perfect ongoing deepening relationship with our creator our savior and our life that's what that world is going to be but again to come back to the troubling theme of today of this passage all of that is conditional on us forgiving those debts to us forgiving the debts of others doesn't mean just fyi before anyone gets too scared it doesn't mean diving back into toxic relationships it doesn't mean trying to spend time with people bent on continuing in their unhealthy or backward paths It doesn't even mean reaching out to say, I forgive you, if that would be a dangerous or counterproductive thing to do. It simply means doing business with your own heart so that it can acknowledge what has been done to you, to acknowledge and understand the brokenness and limitations of those other people and to begin choosing even a little bit by little bit to hope for the good of the other, to desire that they If not now, then at least in the end, we'll be able to acknowledge their own brokenness, to take responsibility for their own faults. And if in the end, the mercy of God, they are numbered among those who we meet in the new creation, that we will be glad to see them transformed there, just as we will have been. Through whatever difficult and purging fire of self-reflection and change that we will have to endure to be cleaned enough for that new creation, and knowing that everyone else there will have likewise had to come through their own fiery self-realization and self-renunciation in proportion to whatever we're holding on to for ourselves. That's the hope that we have. That should always be part of the picture that we keep in our minds for the hope of the new creation. And we're about to enter a season where that hope is about to become very explicit, where we think intentionally about what that world will be like when we think of the world before its hope christ came into it and when we think of the world when it will be fully perfected and summed up in christ the season of advent begins next sunday so this message is for us to begin weighing on our hearts to begin opening it up Like water on a dry desert ground, let this idea, this concept seep into our hearts so that it's soft and ready for the season of Advent so that our expectation will be pure, that we will make progress in the march toward that day in our efforts at being prepared for that day. This is where the rubber meets the road for us now. Are you ready? That hope isn't something we sit back and wait on. Yes, we are waiting for God to finish it, to fully bring it about. But our part, the beginning of the fires of preparation start right here and right now. Now is when we start the forgiving. Now is when we begin preparing our hearts for that world. If we simply follow what Jesus shows us and tells us, then almost magically we will discover that on that great day of judgment, We're already prepared for it. We will have been aligning ourselves with the right course, preparing ourselves for the purified nature of that new world, transforming ourselves into saints, into people who belong with that great cloud of witnesses that we read about this morning, who can be at peace with everyone, forgive the debts now, or at least begin the process And in the world to come, we won't find it repelling or scary or uncomfortable. We will find it to be paradise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and Reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.